0: Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. Standing, stand and we're gonna read the scripture here and our passage this morning comes from John chapter 11 verses 45 through 57 it says many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary and had seen with uh, what he had done believed in him but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said what are we to do for this man performs many signs If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went away there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went away from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. You guys can be seated.
1: Good morning. Our passage this morning is filled with ironies, if you noticed them. Ironies that reveal the tension. Between the sovereignty of God and the will of man. More specifically, between God's good purposes and the evil purposes of men. A tension that compels us to ask perhaps the most difficult question we will ever face as God's people. It's a question that comes in a couple of different forms. The more general form of the question goes something like this. If God is good and in control, then why does evil seem to triumph over good so often? A more personal form of this question that I actually find even more challenging is why is it that a God who invites us to call him Abba, Daddy, sometimes allow us, his children, to suffer deeply. Anybody ever asked that question? Anybody ever wrestled with these things? I think all of us have, and if you haven't, you will. Probably when you're experiencing difficulty, suffering, and pain, you just can't understand. King David, the Old Testament King David, was well acquainted with difficulty, suffering, and pain. Especially as King Saul and his army continually pursued David, trying to kill him. Nothing had gone as David thought it would after God declared to David that he would be king in Israel. Now David found himself to be a homeless, fugitive, in constant danger, wondering if every day would be his last. Remarkably, it was in the midst of this turmoil that David writes Psalm 23, in which he says, among other things, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. In other words, I will not fear that evil will utterly consume me because you, my God, are with me. What did David know about the God who was with him? that kept him flourishing even when the wheels of his life were falling off. I believe David lived under a truth about God. We'll discover this morning as we return to John chapter 11. We'll discover this morning that God's goodness is right on time all the time guaranteeing that God always accomplishes His good purposes for us who are His. I believe God the Holy Spirit has given us John chapter 11, at least in part, to invite us to flourish under this reality, regardless of our circumstances. As we return to John chapter 11 this morning, you remember that Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, thereby proving he was who he claimed to be, God's Messiah, the very Son of God who had come to destroy the works of the devil, conquer the power of sin, and make all things new. We pick up the action in verse 45, where we read that many of the Jews, therefore who had come with Mary, Lazarus' sister, and had seen what Jesus had done in raising Lazarus from the dead, they believed in him as the Son of God, as the long-awaited Messiah who had finally come. But some, we read in verse 46, instead of trusting Jesus, felt threatened by him. So they went to the Pharisees, the self-proclaimed religious police of the day, and they tattled on Jesus. And they told the Pharisees all about this horrible thing Jesus had done in raising Lazarus from the dead. How dare he do something so offensive? Their hardness of heart toward the one who had just proven he's the source of life itself is stunning. Until we recall the words of Jesus in John chapter 6 where he reminded us that until God captured our hearts, opened our eyes, granted us faith, and made us his, we were just as hard-hearted toward the things of God as the Jews were that day. Following the example of their mentors, we see in verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees, who upon hearing Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, instead of rejoicing that God's Messiah had finally come, the one whom they had claimed to be waiting for had finally come, instead the Jewish leaders gathered together the council. Referring to the Sanhedrin. A religious society made up of, I should say a religious slash legal society made up of Pharisees, Sadducees, and chief priests. Groups that did not always get along because of some theological differences, but would come together to solve the most crucial issues facing the nation of Israel. This time they gathered out of a shared hatred for Jesus, who by drawing people to himself threatened their status as the religious and political elite in the land. So they gathered the council together and began to say, what are we to do? For this man, Jesus, performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everybody's going to believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place, referring to the temple. They never referred to the temple uh, directly because of religious reverence. So they're saying the Romans will come and take away our temple, our place of worship, and our nation. Which actually was true, since if the Jews followed Jesus as Messiah, which is just another word for king, then the Romans would have seen this as insurrection. And they would have crushed the nation of Israel. Now, even though this statement is true on its face, can you see how it drips with hard-hearted irony? For here we have Jesus turning water into wine, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, giving sight to the blind, and raising the dead, doing things only God can do. The things that God promised He would do through His Messiah, these religious leaders claimed to be waiting for. But now, with God's Messiah standing right in front of them, instead of celebrating their Redeemer, they rejected Him as their enemy. Why? Because Jesus acted outside of their religious purview, making them feel irrelevant In other words, we might restate uh, their statement in verses 47 and 48 to read something like this. If we let him go on like this, then Jesus will upset the power sharing agreement we have with the Romans that allows us to wield control over the people by controlling the temple and the nation. Ironically. Rome would destroy both the temple and the nation less than 40 years later because the leaders rejected God's Messiah and therefore murdered Him. Their plan to do so unfolds with even greater irony. It reveals God's complete sovereignty and total goodness in verses 49 and following where we read that one of the, the men at the at the at the council the sanhedrin specifically caiaphas who was high priest that year and therefore kind of the de facto president of the council said to them you know nothing at all nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish do you hear the irony in caiaphas's words If we were to take his statement at face value, we might think he's proclaiming the gospel. That God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Not surprisingly, we read in verse 51, Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, even though he was a godless man, God chose to speak to him as he sometimes did to high priests, compelling Caiaphas to prophesy that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. What a beautiful summary of the gospel. That God's Messiah would die a substitutionary death for us to cancel our sin, the sin that separated us from the God who longed to gather us, his people, his children to himself, that we might flourish together in his presence forever. It's amazing that this gospel proclamation came through Caiaphas, isn't it? who in his hardness of heart twisted this beautiful gospel uh, proclamation into a self-serving directive to murder Jesus for his own evil purposes. So we see in verse 53 that from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Verse 54, therefore, Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Why did Jesus retreat with his disciples in this way? Was it because he was afraid? No. Jesus wasn't afraid of these people. Jesus retreated the way he did because the preordained time for his death had not yet come though it surely would. As Jesus repeatedly said, for example, in Luke 9, 22, Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. But he also said in John chapter 10, I lay down my life. That I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, of my own will. I alone have authority to lay down my life and I alone have authority to take it up again. This authority I've received from my father which means even though it may have appeared as if evil men were calling the shots, it turns out that the sovereign God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, was in total control, accomplishing His good purposes for His glory and our best according to His sovereign plan. Good news? Yeah. Let's move on. Verse 55 in John chapter 11. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, where is he? What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? See, it turns out the chief priests and Pharisees, verse 57, had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest them as if they were in control. When the truth is, The sovereign God was orchestrating his preordained plan to purchase a people for himself through the perfect life, sacrificial death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. A plan that included the hard-hearted rebellion of Caiaphas and the religious leaders, but guaranteed, as we see in Romans 5, verse 6, and I love this reminder that Paul says, That God demonstrates His own love toward us in that at just the right time, at exactly the right time. And who decided that time? God did. At just the right time, according to God's sovereign plan, Christ died for the ungodly. So here's the question I have for you Who put Jesus on the cross? Was it the good God or was it evil men? Or is that a trick question? It was both. And yet, who was ultimate in this? Whose will was ultimate in the timing and the fact that Jesus went to the cross? It was, of course, our sovereign God, which takes us back to this beautiful theme for today, that God's goodness is right on time all the time. Do you believe that? God's goodness is right on time all the time. Guaranteeing He is always accomplishing His good purposes for us who are His. Believing that God not only knew about, but was completely sovereign over the evil that hung Jesus on the cross. Just as God not only knew about, but was sovereign over the fall in Eden. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, plunging themselves and us, their descendants, under the curse of sin. But remember, it was there, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that God promised to send a Messiah, the one who would destroy the works of the devil, conquer the power of sin, and make all things new. How many of you know that this has always been God's plan A? and that he has never had a plan B. And yet, even God's plan A is filled with irony as he used the most evil event, the most evil act in history to conquer evil itself. You do know, don't you, that even though the cross was the greatest and most beautiful act from the the perspective of redemption, it was also the most evil act in history. Since the greatest and best was murdered by the least and the worst, also that God could triumph over evil, as we see in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. I love this. Here we see that God in Christ at the cross disarmed the rulers and the authorities. Who's he referring to here? The devil and his demons. God disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ at the cross. And how did he do that? Well, we see in verses 13 and 14 of Colossians, he did that by forgiving our sins, by removing that which the devil had as a lever over us. And so we read, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your heart, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. Amen. Good news. Anybody excited about that? I am. I love that. The list of demands, he says, he has taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross, crushing it, removing all the leverage the evil one had over us, thereby making us his. But don't miss this. Don't miss the fact that God used the most evil act in history to conquer evil itself, just as he used the highest expression of sin in history to conquer sin itself. Now, when I say that, that those who um, uh, nailed Jesus to the cross embodied the highest expression of sin, I'm not saying they're any more sinful than you and me. I'm saying that, that the sin they expressed, though it was the highest expression possible of sin, reflected the sin that's true of me and that once defined me, that once defined us before God made us his by his grace. What I want you to see Don't miss this. God used the most evil act in history to conquer evil just as he used the highest expression of sin to conquer sin. And I find this to be immensely encouraging because it means that God is sovereign over evil. God is completely sovereign over sin. Which is not only why he could guarantee that Jesus would go to the cross at just the right time in order to make us his. It means that God is still sovereign over evil and sin in our still fallen world today. Amen? Anybody believe that? Because this is true, we can say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.28 that God causes all things to work together For good to those who belong to him. Now, notice he doesn't say that all things are good, does he? No. He says that God, in his complete sovereignty and total goodness, is able to bring capital G goodness for his glory and our best out of all things, including evil things, which is just another way of saying, and again, this is our theme today, that God's goodness is right on time, all the time. Guaranteeing God is always accomplishing his good purposes for us who are his. And I love that. I love that because it means no matter what this broken world throws at me, no matter what evil or suffering I or those I love must face, I know, as Paul says in Romans 8, verse 32, that he who did not spare his own son, but at just the right time, according to his sovereign preordained plan, gave him up for us all, if God did not spare his own son, But gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul is arguing here from greater to lesser. He's saying if God has already given us the infinitely valuable gift of his son, Jesus Christ, to give us eternal life, then surely he will give us everything else we need to flourish in him. Regardless of our circumstances. But if you're like me, that can be hard to believe sometimes. Especially in the midst of difficulty, suffering, and pain we just don't understand. Until we remember that God used the most evil act in history, the cross of Jesus Christ, to bring us the highest and greatest good in Christ. Which means that even when we cannot fathom how God could possibly bring good out of a difficult circumstance, we can be certain He will. You can be certain that God will use all of your suffering and all of your pain to accomplish His good purposes for His glory and your best. Now again, I struggle with this as you do at times. When I struggle to believe that this is true, I've learned to look at the cross. To remember the cross of Christ. Because the cross reminds me that even when it feels like it, I know God is not holding out on me. God isn't playing games with me. He's already proven His infinite love and intentions toward me. Which means... He's not calling me to suffer randomly. No. Instead, in the mystery of God's sovereignty and proven goodness toward us in Christ, even when we can't imagine how He will do so, my friends, my brothers, my sisters, God assures us that He will use even This, whatever the this is that you're facing, to accomplish his good purposes in you for his glory in your best. And whatever else he's trying to accomplish in us, and by the way, we may not be able to figure that out, we may never know exactly what God is doing. But you can be sure that in the midst of that difficulty, he wants to draw you closer to himself. He wants to increasingly help you to find your identity, life, and hope in him alone, that you might flourish in him regardless of your circumstances. Convinced that our good God, that our good and sovereign God is never out of control. He's never confused or befuddled. He's never surprised about what's happening in your life. Do you know that? And that's true even in the darkest moments that you experience. On the contrary, if the cross shows us anything at all, it shows us that oftentimes it's in the darkest moments that God's sovereign goodness shines the brightest. And that's true even when we can't see that light. But the more we believe that God's goodness is right on time, all the time, guaranteeing that his, God is always accomplishing his good purposes for us who are his, the more we'll find ourselves saying with King David, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Because you, the sovereign, good God, who has proven your love toward me in Christ, you are with me, and that is enough. As I close this morning, I wonder where this profoundly encouraging truth finds you today. I know that some of you have suffered greatly. Some of you may be suffering greatly even this morning. Some of you have experienced or are experiencing abuse or neglect. Loss or betrayal. Maybe you're dealing with the consequences of your own sin or the consequences of someone else's sin against you. And for some of you, this may have produced a doubt in you that's leading toward despair. Maybe you just feel like you're right on the cusp. You're just about to throw in the towel. I know what that feels like, too. When I come to those moments, I try to remember that even when it doesn't feel like it, the cross of Jesus Christ guarantees that God's goodness is right on time all the time, guaranteeing that God is always accomplishing his good purposes in us who are his. And God this morning invites you to rest in that knowledge, in the knowledge that he, the sovereign good God, who has proven his love for you in his son Jesus Christ, that he sees you, that he understands what you're going through, remembering that Jesus, the God-man, entered and endured evil at its highest point. He entered and endured evil, suffering, and sin at its highest point in order to conquer it for you. And now he invites you to walk with him through the valley that you find yourself in, trusting that He will sustain you, that He will walk beside you, that He will encourage you and give you exactly what you need to flourish in Him until that final day when He leads you into glory, into that place where there'll be no more suffering, no more brokenness, no more pain, only perfect flourishing. With him, As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, I I really want to encourage you to, to talk to the Lord about what He's saying to you this morning. I know that for some of you this is heavy. I know for some of you, you're on the other side of suffering and so you're able to say, yep, that's true. But some of you I know are right in the middle of it and you're not sure it's true. And that's okay to be right where you are. God is not afraid of those emotions. So let's pray together, and let's ask God to meet us right where we are, to be our sustenance and life in this moment. Our God and Father, we're so grateful for who you are. We're grateful for your infinite goodness. We're grateful for your complete sovereignty, your total control over all things. Were it not for your goodness we would wonder if you really cared about us sometimes. But we know that in Christ, at the cross, you've proven you not only care about us, you've given us your very best to make us yours, that we might flourish in you. And so, God, we come to you this morning, and I want to pray specifically for those who are hurting, for those who are wondering if you are there, God, if you do see them, if you care, if you're at work or if you've forgotten them. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you remind my brother, would you remind my sister that you see him, that you see her, that you've seen them from eternity, that you sent your son Jesus to make them yours, and that you're walking with them even through this valley that feels a lot like death. God, would you remind us this day that the cross of Jesus Christ proves your good intentions toward us so that even when we don't know why, it turns out we don't need to know why because we know that you are good, that you are in control, that your goodness is always right on time, all the time, guaranteeing you're always accomplishing your good purposes for us who are yours by your grace. We love you. Help us walk in this grace today. In Jesus' name.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue to love God.